Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, we're back, and let's go right to the phones. Joining us, one of our favorite contributors, especially during the ice fishing season, Nate Zielinski. Good morning, Nate. Good morning, Terry. How are you today? I'm doing well, and I imagine you've got a lot to update us on, both on conditions on the ice and in tournaments, so let's just get into it. I I saw a notice from you that you're kind of shifting some things around on your ice addiction tournaments. What can you tell us there? You know, absolutely, Terry. We're, we're excited to announce it. I mean, obviously, I you know, we just heard from Lake John. I think everybody in the in the kind of event organization world, as well as the sports show world, obviously, there's so much stuff changing. And to be honest, you know, I'd love to just kind of talk about it because I have a lot of people that are just calling, asking, wondering what's happening with ice tournaments, and it puts you into a weird position just simply for the fact that obviously safety is everyone's concern. Myself, and I think everybody that is involved in the industry and just in life in general. Uh, um, you know, we're taking everything serious. We want to be safe. But in the event of ice fishing, you know, you're out on the ice. It's cold. It's, you know, we're, we're really promoting everybody not being around each other. Um, there's a lot of ways to do a digital entry to where you can really eliminate any contact, any close quarter gathering, uh, you know, with a, with a few minor changes to the typical ice fishing tournament. So there's a lot of ways to, to make it very efficient uh, with the current COVID regulations and really just the emphasis of being safe. Uh, but obviously, you still have to work with state agencies and and just make sure that that you can you know properly make sure that this happens uh, both safely and legally in those matters. So there's a lot going into events this year. Uh, with that, we had an event scheduled uh, for Boyd Lake on January 16th. Uh, that is not going to happen now at Boyd Lake. We also had another event on January 30th at Cherry Creek, uh, just due to to the location of those events and regulations uh, and safety precautions. We decided to not have those events. Uh, we are moving those events. We'll be able to announce that on Monday or Tuesday, hopefully, of this week. Uh, where we have the paperwork signed. Everything's good. We're just waiting for our final copy of the permit to come back to us before we can legally release those uh, those venues. So we're excited about that. They're actually going to both be new venues for us. Uh, so I think we'll be going to those two new locations as far as January 16th and January 30th. Again, you can look to our Facebook page or our new website, which will be launching next week. All that will be on there. Uh, we can announce as of today uh, that January January 23rd, we will be going to Utah. That is also a new location for us. We've been planning this the entire time, really since May. We're going to be going to Steinecker Reservoir just outside of Vernal. Uh, absolutely tremendous fishery, uh, great location, good ice. It's kind of the best of all worlds. Uh, we've actually wanted to go there for several years, just haven't been able to due to parking. Uh, they've done a lot of cool things. they got some new plows. So we're going to be able to handle all of our parking there. So we're really excited to go January 23rd. We're going to be going to Steinecker, and then uh, we'll be returning to Grand. Lake on February 20th, and we're really excited about that event, Terry. Obviously, the poor town of Grand Lake, uh, very much a destination, vacation, you know, travel-to type town. Uh, they don't get a lot of the bonuses of skiing, and then obviously had a fire that just, you know, really put a, a very hurting on that town, on the residents, on the homes. Um, so we're really excited to, to come there on February 20th to Grand Lake, uh, just bring bring some people to the town, support the town, support the local venues and, and restaurants. Uh, so really excited about that. So as of 
as of today, we're announcing January 23rd at Steinecker in Utah, and we're really excited about February 20th at Grand Lake. Again, we have made some changes to the event series um, as far as how we're doing awards, how we're doing our registration, our check-in, uh, to really make sure that everybody stays extremely safe. So we've worked with every health organization, uh, and we're excited about that. So by middle uh, middle end of this coming week, our full schedule will be out, uh, and tickets are going to go on sale December 15th. Uh, so everybody can mark their calendars December 15th at 8 a.m. All the tickets will be available for ice addiction. Uh, so again, yeah, I think uh, as any organizer, obviously very late uh, to the to the table with all this information. Uh, we were ready to launch August 1st, but obviously due to, to COVID and just kind of things happening, um, we were not able to release just per per advice from state agencies. Uh, so excited that we're getting closer and uh, we're making some announcements. So can't wait for ice season. Oh, you're absolutely right. And you know what? There, You heard me talking to Doug. There is a huge pent-up demand to get out on the ice. You know, early in the season like this, even though it's warm down here in the front range, people have put their boats away. Every now and then you get a little skim ice on the shore at the lake. We're going to talk some shore fishing later, but it can be a little iffy at times. And there's just – but there are ice fishing opportunities. The mountains are cold. It's been happening. What are you seeing out there? Where can people maybe start doing some trips, Nate? Absolutely, Terry. You know, I mean, I saw ice on Friday, even down in the city. Uh, by no means ice that you could stand on or fish, but we're seeing ice, which is just great to see, just to know that the season's kicking off. Um, you know, right now, I would say that the two fisheries that I'm putting, or three fisheries I'm putting a lot of emphasis on, uh, are the South Park Lakes. And Taro has ice. Again, that, that lake froze completely and then the wind shredded the ice on a good portion of it then it refroze and the wind beat up one more section of it um so you have a lot of varying ice conditions so the biggest thing in antero um check the ice off and obviously you heard a show you know two shows ago where we we're really talking about a spud bar no matter what you do drill holes spud bar make sure you're constantly checking the ice because there there has been some situations where guys got themselves into a little bit of a pickle and it's more so of drilling a hole being on six seven inches of ice feeling very confident confident and then you walk 30 yards and you're on an inch and a half of two inches of ice where that ice was shredded uh, not too long ago because of that wind. So again, there is fishable conditions at Antero. Just check the ice to make sure that you are on the ice that has been there the longest and you have that good solid ice under your feet. So check it often. Uh, but there is a lot of action happening there, both numbers of fish and big fish. Uh, it seems like the deeper water is producing numbers of fish. It seems like the super shallow water is producing the big fish. Um, you know, So if you're looking for, for a very large fish, I mean, shallow two three maybe four feet of water uh, at max and that's where those big fish are going to be coming through if you're looking for numbers sitting on the edge of a weed line sitting in that deeper water maybe that eight to twelve feet uh eight to ten feet has been very productive for more of the numbers of the fish there so that's kind of that update uh jumping over to 11 mile i think everybody that fishes 11 mile enough knows that 11 mile can can really be hit or miss it's one of those lakes that's hot or cold uh, and i can tell you right now we are starting off the ice season with with a very good spell of some good fish um same thing we we really you're putting most of your focus on fishing in the bays you're putting your focus on fishing at the inlet um the entire lake is not fishable by any means so do not go up to 11 mile with uh, the focus of thinking that the whole lake is fishable the whole lake is walkable uh you know and, and things like that so you really have 
have to use caution. Obviously, 11 miles is a very big body of water, so really use caution as you approach that ice. But but the ice that you can get on, the ice that you are feeling comfortable with, uh, there are some great fish coming out, both numbers and a lot of very large fish. Uh, you know, at 11 mile, I will say that one of my big focuses when I start off early ice there, and this really will transfer uh, over to Ontario as well, when the lakes first freeze, it really stabilizes the system. The water's cold. It's clear. We haven't had any sort of oxygen deprivation. So a lot of times, this is the time of year where you're fishing extremely clear water. With that, I think a lot of people go into clear water and they really fish small jigs and they downsize. They want to be very natural, which at times can catch a lot of fish. But for me personally, I upscale. I go with a larger presentation. I want those fish to see me. I want them to approach to where, you know, on a normal ice fishing day, middle of the winter, I run a lot of like inch and a half tube jigs. This time of year, I'll run the same tube jigs I run in summer. I'll run, you know, two and a half inch, three inch tube jigs. I'm running a lot of big chubby darters, big jigging wraps, even blade baits. I'm running a, a high profile, aggressive bait in that clear water. The fish have energy. They're feeding heavily. Oxygen levels are high. Uh, these fish have spunk to them right now. So I use a bigger presentation, a lot of times even suspended in the water column. So as to where if I'm using a smaller presentation, the fish have to be fairly close for the, to see it and then activate on it. I'm running that big profile where these fish can see it from 20, 30, 40 feet away. They can see it from a great distance. They feel it, they see it, they get excited, and they come in to approach from that point. So early ice right now, especially at 11 mile, I'm using a lot of bigger, more reactionary, very visual bait uh, and that's going to really help me catch more fish at the end of the day then the other fishery we have going on uh, terry all right now has good ice it's a very cold area um, still use caution everywhere on that body of water but you are going to find some better ice conditions there than other portions of the state um, and i wouldn't go there necessarily with the focus of catching trophy fish other than maybe some some giant pike that are coming through but that is a great fishery right now to to dust off the equipment go have a good day catch fish um, you know in the speakings of catching numbers of fish you're going to be putting a focus on rainbow trout. Uh, I would say most of those fish are going to be running, you know, 10 to 14 inches, something like that. Uh, just good fish, quality fish, high action fish. And generally speaking, they come in, in a large quantity. So you have the opportunity to find quite a few fish. Um, like I mentioned in the last show, you know, last week, um, there's enough fish coming through at Terryall um, to where that's a fishery where I would not sit around waiting for them. If I drill a hole, I start fishing. If it's 15, 20 minutes, maybe a little longer, if I don't have fish coming through, if I don't see them on my graph, I'm not actively catching them. Um, that's a situation where I would move almost a immediately i really power fish until i start seeing fish there's enough fish in there to where you don't have time to waste you should be on fish fairly consistently so drop down fish a couple of minutes if you don't have fish keep moving until you find those fish and that's really going to be the best way to set yourself up for a very successful day um, on the ice there and at terriol a lot of times i run a combination i, I have a two rod stamp here in colorado so a lot of times at Terriol, I'll run a, a very still presentation. I fish a small jig on a slip bobber, and then I'll have my aggressive technique. Uh, some days are, they're one or the other. Like I said, again, same thing, past show. Um, very commonly at Terriol, they want one or the other. It's very rare that they're going to hit both. They either want that still presentation or they want the very active presentation. But even if they're on the still presentation, you know, we mention it all the time, a lot of times that active presentation will pull those fish in. Um, so really keep that in mind at Terriol. I will say at a 
11 mile, Antero, even your Lake Johns, your Delaney Buttes. A lot of times when I'm fishing the bigger fish, I don't like to confuse them with multiple presentations. So if I'm fishing Antero right now or even 11 mile, a lot of times I'll only use one rod. I want those fish to see that one bait. I want them to focus on that one bait. I don't want to distract them as they're coming in. And it's one of those things that comes with that more aggressive technique of those bigger tubes, those bigger reactionary baits. Uh, I really run one bait. Let them focus on it. Come in, keep their focus, uh, and it helps you create a little more success at the end of the day. That going back to Terry All, is there any particular depth somebody should start at, and is the yep. type of jig seem to matter? You know, at Terriol, I would say, number one, putting a, a focus on bright colors. Um, you know, a bright white, a bright orange, a bright pink. Those are those are some of my common colors. I would say that white and orange are probably my two go-tos more than anything else. Kind of a brighter burnt orange or a, a fairly bright white. Uh, not necessarily glow, but more just a nice pearly white. Um, those colors seem to be doing really well there right now. Um, fishing just on the edge of weeds, just on the edge of breaks. I would say 10 to 12 feet of water um, seems to be a very good depth right now um, you have fish coming through there consistently all day if you go real shallow uh, you have really good periods of, of bites kind of early and late but it's not as consistent that's where that deeper water 8 to 12 feet you have a lot more consistent fish coming through um, you know and, and I'm fishing the entire fishery you can go all the way around it uh, find those depths and do good um, I'm doing a little better around vegetation than I am around rocks uh, I know a lot of anglers that are having a lot of success around rocks but me personally uh, I'm doing better sitting just off the weed bed in that 8 to 12 foot uh, to catch a lot more fish. So I'm finding those weed edges, you know, just getting off them just slightly, uh, setting up and having some good presentations. I am tipping my baits at Terriol. A lot of times at Antero, uh, an 11 mile with those reaction baits, I'm not tipping it, no scent, no smell. I'm just running plain baits. Um, as we're at Terriol, I am tipping my baits. A uh, big fan of wax worms or shrimp there, even mealworms. The biggest thing I think to, to mention when I'm tipping baits, um, if I'm using a mealworm, I don't get near as much scent. So if I use a mealworm, I'm usually going to rip the bait in half. So I'll take that live mealworm, crack them in half, uh, just so you get a lot of scent extruding out of that bait. Uh, so break those mealworms in half, and I would change a mealworm out every 10 to 15 minutes. 15 minutes is max. After 15 minutes, your bait's saturated, you're going to lose that scent. Uh, as opposed to using a, a wax worm or shrimp, uh, you can probably get 30 minutes, 45 minutes out of a piece of bait as far as scent. Now, hopefully you're catching a fish every 5 to 10 minutes, so you're not worried about that. Uh, but just keep that in mind. Waxworms and shrimp are going to extrude scent a lot longer than a mealworm. Uh, so if you're using mealworms, change it out very often uh, to keep the, the overall success going throughout the day. Nate, we are out of time, but if people want to book a trip, get more information, or even maybe buy something to give us a Christmas gift from you, how do they do that? You know, you can, you can jump on Facebook right now, Tightline Outdoors. We're doing a lot of posts there talking about the tournament series. And then we are launching our new website. We are hoping to launch it last week. We had to make these changes for our ice eviction events. Uh, so this coming week, we'll launch our brand-new website, ton of content, ton of information. Uh, so everything will be available there. But, again, Facebook or online, uh, give us a call, shoot us an email. Everything's just Tightline Outdoors. Uh, we'd love to help you out. And, yeah, absolutely. We, we, we're doing a lot of gift cards right now for Christmas. Guide trip, education, fun. Uh, makes a great gift for any, any outdoorsmen out there. All right, my friend, we will talk to you next week. Uh, good luck on the water. Thank you so much, Terry. We'll talk to you soon. You bet, Nate Zolinski. We're going to take a quick time out, and we're going to change things up, and we're going to talk waterfall hunting in Colorado on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Wickstrom Outdoors is brought to you by Jack's Outdoor Gear. And speaking of Jack's Outdoor Gear, we're going to go right to the phones and 
Joining us from the Fort Collins store is Reese Roberts. Good morning, Reese. Good morning, Terry. How are you today? You know, I'm doing great, and we've been talking a lot of fishing, but I want to change things up and talk hunting with you. Uh, we've had this just enormous amount of people getting outdoors, taking up new activities. You know, they can't go on their normal vacations. They're turning to Colorado, which is a great outdoor state. And a lot of them have gone fishing, hiking, and parks, but a lot are turning to hunting. They're either going back to it or they're starting it for the first time. And I'm a big believer that some of the shotgun sports are the easiest or the less intimidating for hunters to get into than, say, big game hunting up in the mountains. We've talked about that in the past. But waterfall hunting can also be something you can easily get into very inexpensively. You can just buy a shotgun and go jump shooting, or you can spend a lot of money and sometimes the wrong money in buying decoys and whatever you need. How do you help somebody when they come in? If I come in, I say, I want to get into waterfall hunting. Where do we start? So the first thing that we generally go over is trying to figure out what experience uh, that customer has. So figuring out if they've gone out with a few of their friends, if they've previously hunted with an outfitter. Um, So we'll kind of figure out what their experience level is and then kind of go over the style of hunting that they're planning on doing, whether that's going to be primarily field hunting and trying to decoy birds, whether it's jump shooting like you suggested or hunting water. So trying to figure out the the setup that they're going to be using, where they're going to be generally hunting, and then we can go from there to establish the decoys if necessary, to establish the different shot size, which ammo to get. Um, There's a lot of kind of variables that go into that, but primarily it's just based on the style of hunting that they're going to be doing. Now, suppose I come in, I'm not 100% sure. I think I'm going to be doing some geese because we're having, first of all, we're having a record geese goose season. The geese are wonderful. I want to talk to you in a little bit about what you're seeing out there because I know you're an avid waterfaller. But what do I need for a gun? If I have a gun or don't have a gun, how do you help me there? So one of the benefits of waterfowl hunting is it's it's not really super dependent on a certain type of shotgun. You can hunt with over-unders, you can hunt with pump shotguns. I know quite a few people who have hunted with bolt-action shotguns. Um, It's one of those that, in most instances, if you already have a shotgun, we can get it to work for waterfowl, Um, whether that be changing out your choke tube or just picking out a good shell that will work for waterfowl. And if I'm looking at a new shotgun, what kind of price range do I need, am I looking at, and what, you know, you can get shotguns in two and a half, three, three and a half, and the bigger ones will usually handle the shorter shells. What kind of price range, and what do you recommend in the uh, shell size? So for a price range, uh, realistically, anywhere from three to $500 can get you started into it without breaking the bank on the actual firearm. Um, some of the ones that we more commonly sell are going to be like the Benelli Novas and the Benelli Supernovas, which are two pump shotguns uh, that will handle three and a half inch shells as well as the threes and the two and a halves. Um, In normal instances, I would say the Remington 870 and the Mossberg 500 are probably the two most popular pump shotguns that we do sell. Um, They're just really hard to track down at the moment. You know, when looking at shotguns, I know you can get, like you mentioned, an over-under. You can get a side-by-side. You can even get a single-shot break action. Um, A lot of people love the auto-loaders. 
I'm a big fan of the pump action versus the auto loader for a couple reasons. One is that when you do work the pump, you bring yourself back on target. You take the time to re-aim. Where with a lot of uh, auto loaders or semi-automatics, they fire that first shot way too quickly before they're back on target. And if you're going to have a malfunction in cold, wet weather, it's probably going to be with uh, an auto loader. Is that what you see too? Oh, yeah, um, especially with some of the groups of people that I've gone out hunting with in the past and that currently hunt with pretty regularly, you definitely start to notice that that second shot, they're, they're kind of ripping that as, as quickly as they can, um, which always isn't the most accurate. Um, whereas with the pump gun, which I hunt with an older Mossberg 500, and even just that small moment to work the slide action gives you a second to get back on pace, get back on target, and make a good follow-up shot. And they're really dependable. They really are. Before we go on to some of the nuances and some of the other gear, what have you seen and heard out there as far as waterfall in Colorado this year? It's been very productive um, from the, the people that we get coming into the store that are avid goose hunters. They're seeing a lot of birds flying. They're having a lot of birds decoying, which is great. Um, we are getting quite a few migratory birds, which is nice. Uh, the majority of the the birds around Colorado, however, tend to not migrate. So they're, they're native birds, so they're, I would say, more educated than some of the, the ones that are coming in from the north flying south. Uh, so there's some different tactics to kind of hunt either of those. Um, but they're definitely, I know a lot of people who are getting their limit, which is what we love to hear. Oh, and I think that when duck season resumes again, I, we did have a great influx of ducks, but they kind of got spread out because the water was so warm and it was that nothing was frozen, so they didn't get concentrated. I think that'll, you know, that'll pick up. And I think Colorado is, they're fortunate we have two flyways here. And if you look at all the different seasons between those two flyways, you can hunt from almost September, October through till March with the conservation season. So there's waterfall hunting available. I mean, you haven't missed out if you haven't started yet. So yeah. there's a lot. Do you, do you find there's a lot of access, public access, for people to hunt in Colorado? Oh, there's definitely a lot of public access. There's quite a few public game units that are specifically for waterfowl um, and there's great resources on the Division of Wildlife's website as well as in their small game brochure as well as the walk-in atlas that can give people as much opportunity as they want to find. Now let's, I want to, I want to get back to some mistakes people make, but real quickly, do I need to buy decoys and do I need to be able to call and what do I need to spend? Kind of take me through those two things. So decoys definitely help. Um, just having something in a field that is kind of a marker for the geese to try to land at because they, they want to be with other geese. So if they see a large open field and there's geese in that field, they'll try to land with those. So having decoys does help. That being said, it's not necessary. Um, I've hunted plenty of times over water where I know birds are flying into that. So there's not really a need for me to even set up. I'm just waiting for them to do what they naturally do. And with a set of decoys, realistically, you can get a half a dozen for anywhere from 100 to $200. Um, and that's a great kind of place to start with just having a few decoys just to have some break up in the field. Um, when it comes to calling, 
kind of the same thing. It depends on the setup that you're using. If you are hunting over decoys, it is nice to have somebody who knows how to call well, and that will definitely help bring in birds. But as I mentioned earlier, there are quite a few birds that don't migrate, so they are educated, and if you are not calling well, they, they can tell the difference, and you'll see flocks of birds avoiding certain fields like the plague because they know that if I fly over there, I'm going to get shot at. What, what, uh, how long does it take to learn to call, and are there, how much do I have to spend, and are there resources? Oh, there's plenty of resources. You can get um, some of the calls that we carry, whether it be like Primos or Zinc. Um, there's kind of basic calls that you can get that are in that 30-ish dollar range that come with DVDs or CDs that kind of explain the different styles of calls, tell you how the calls should sound, um, as well as just resources online, whether it be YouTube or any of the big call companies will have resources on their website that'll go through each one of their different calls, what they are primarily made for, whether that be feeder calls, locator calls. So you can kind of walk through that. And I mean, it really just depends on how much you practice. For a long time, I kept a call in my truck and I would just call while I was driving because it wouldn't annoy my roommate. I can understand that. Now, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see waterfall hunters make early on when they're starting? Um, I think one of the things that a lot of people don't don't think about is the timing. So they'll have birds that are looking at their set, and they either get really just excited or anxious, and we see quite, a, quite often, especially with newer hunters or first-time waterfowlers, that they're shooting much earlier than they need to. Um, a lot of the birds, if you just wait, they will come into your decoys or they'll come close to your decoys, whereas you will be seeing quite a few people who are taking passing shots at birds that are flying 100-plus yards in the air. Um, and that's we just refer to them as educators because they're just teaching those birds not to go to that property. Right. You're absolutely We are running out of time. Um, you have people in all your stores and all this equipment and all the stores that, that you can help people out with. Um, I think it's a great, I, I, I always recommend if you're going to get into waterfall hunting, if you can start with a friend who's experienced or a guide, at least for a couple trips, maybe before you buy more than your, just your shotgun, I think that goes a long way. Don't you? Oh yeah. I a hundred percent agree. If you can get with somebody who is experienced in waterfowl hunting that knows how to set up decoys, knows how to call. It's a fantastic learning experience. And even if you don't have that resource, doing a guided hunt, seeing how somebody who makes a living waterfowl hunting does it, and that will give you a lot of good experience on how you want to do it when you're by yourself. Well, we've got to run, Reese, but if people want to talk more waterfowl, how long are you in the Fort Collins store today? So I'm in here until 4 o'clock today, and then Tuesday through Saturday I'm in here uh, from 8 to 4 o'clock. And stop by any of the Jack stores because oh, you've yeah. got great people. Reese, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. All right, Reese Roberts from Jack's, just great opportunities. Thank you, my friend. We're going to take a quick time out. When we come back, I'm going to talk to you about how to choose an ice fishing rod on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to 
Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104 3 The Fan, brought to you by Jack's Outdoor Gear. I want to take a couple minutes to talk about picking an ice fishing rod, and then we're going to take a quick time out, and Ronnie Castiglione is going to join us, and we're going to talk open water fishing from the shore on the front range here, and I want to get to that. But before I do, people, and this year the supply chains aren't so good, and people, I don't think they understand ice fishing rods the way they do their their summer rods. If you go back to the beginning, I was talking to Greg Clausel last week, and we started our ice fishing rods were actually these wooden dowels that had two pegs in them that we, with a, a pick on the end, we would stick that in the ice and wrap the line around, and we would hand feed the line and hand bring it up and make the presentation by hand. Um, not the most efficient way to fish. As we started getting better summertime rods decades ago, of course, some would get broken at times. So we would take the pieces, shorten up those rods, and then we would make ice fishing rods. And we really noticed the difference in how we could fish. So that started the trend of producing really good ice fishing rods that you don't necessarily have to pay an arm and a leg for. I actually worked on the design for ice fishing rods of two major fishing manufacturers and helped helped design their rods. And I want to kind of tell you what I look for in an ice fishing rod. What do you have to consider? First off, you've got to consider the length of the rod. Are you going to be fishing in a shelter? Well, then you can't have a four-foot-long rod. You usually don't need one that long anyway, but if you're outside fishing for lake trout, you want to really get that hook set in, then maybe you want a longer rod with a stiffer action. But the things you have to start, first decide on the length. I tend to have most of my rods are shorter, so I can use them in a shelter or outside of a shelter. So I keep that in mind. The next thing I consider is what line weight am I going to fish with? You'll hear ice fishermen say, I fish with one pound test. And somebody else says, I fish with 15 pound test, but it's usually lighter. One, four, six, eight, that type of thing. The ice fishing rod, a good ice fishing rod, you don't want one of those pool cue rods that doesn't give it all. When a fish makes a run through the ice, you don't have a lot of rod to absorb that first run. And sometimes it can overwhelm your drag and you'll lose that fish right at the hole or even when you first hook up with it. So I always look for a rod that will protect the line. I want to have a tip that if I'm fishing four-pound, I use a lot of four-pound tests in Colorado. I go up to maybe eight, depending on what I'm doing. Uh, a lot of four-pound tests. I want that rod, when I pull it with four-pound test, I want that rod to bend significantly enough to absorb the initial shock and then have my drag kick in. But I want enough backbone that if I have a larger fish, I can still set the hook and put, keep some pressure on that fish. Also, fish notoriously can spit a lure when you're ice fishing. That softer action in the tip will keep that line tight if that fish makes a run, and you won't be able to spit the lure as easy. So I look for that. The next thing is sensitivity. I want a good sensitive rod. I want a rod that's matched to the weight of the lure I'm using. So if I take a tiny ice jig, when it gets to the bottom of the line, I want to feel that go almost thump in my hand. And when I move that rod, I want to know how far I'm moving that little jig. Now, a lot of people will put spring bobbers on their rods. I'm not against those, mostly for a static line. I almost never use them to make a presentation because when you move the rod, you don't move the bait because the spring bobber goes up and down. You don't know what your presentation is doing. So that's something to keep in mind. I try to, when I go out, if I'm going out initially after trout, I'm going to have two rods. I'm going to have one very sensitive, lighter rod 
that I'm going to have four-pound test on. Probably going to have another rod that I'm going to fish at the same time with about six-pound test, and it's going to be a little longer, a little heavier, and I'm going to fish like a, a, a Northland Rattlespoon or a Swedish Pimple or something like that or, or a, a Johnny Darter or a, um, a Jigging Wrap on that one where I'm having a little more weight and the soft tip of my rod I have my little jig on would not make a good presentation for that, but I still need it with enough flexibility to protect that six-pound test line. So those are some things. Don't go by those pool cues. Get some sensitivity. Make sure you have some action in the tip. You don't have to spend an arm and a leg. You can get ice fishing rods starting at $10, $20 and put your summer reels on them. We're going to talk more about this as the days go on, and we're also going to talk about what kind of line to put on them. But hopefully that gives you a few pointers. We're going to take a time out. We come back. Ronnie Castiglione is going to join us, and we're going to talk open water fishing on Colorado's Front Range on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors, presented by Jack's Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Coming down the chimney down. It's the holiday season. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. It is time for our Fishful Thinker segment. We are going to go right to the phones, and joining us is Ronnie Castiglione. Good morning, Ronnie. Good morning, Mr. Terry Wickstrom. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Now, we I know you're an avid ice angler, but uh, you also don't want to give up the open water. And on the front range, we're headed for some really nice weather. There's going to be quite a few open water opportunities for a while yet, isn't there? There is, Terry. You know, it is kind of a, a really cool time of year because if you are looking to do some ice fishing, you can, you know, take a short drive up into the mountains right now and you can find good ice. But there's also the opportunity down, you know, on the front range to, to get into some open water still. And, and you know, it's one of the better times of year really to get out and do it if you're, if you're willing to get out and brave a little bit of cold weather. Uh, the fishing from shore right now, if you go to a lake like Horsetooth or Carter or, or Pueblo or some of the other bodies of water that still have open water, uh, the fishing can be really good this time of year, Terry. So it's definitely not time to put the long rods away quite yet. So how do you decide where to go and how do you approach it, Ronnie? You know, Terry, a big thing this time of year is is understanding the, the species of fish that I'm looking for. And that's going to kind of determine where I'm going to go. So, you know, as, as the temperatures get cold, the water temperature for the most part is going to be in the 40s or low 40s this time of year. Um, you know, I'm going to look for, if I'm looking for easy fish, I'm going to look for cold water species. Uh, trout, for one, are, are very, very active and very, very happy in 40-degree water temperature. Uh, they're not sluggish at all. They're definitely feeding. They're darting around. And, and if you can find a body of water that's been recently stocked, which a lot of them have, you're going to have no problem at all getting those fish to react to baits and, and running through a lot of stocker trout. Um, if I'm looking for maybe something with a little more challenge, then I'm going to be looking for lakes that, that have smallmouth in them and, and maybe walleyes. Because uh, smallmouth and walleyes, although they don't necessarily love the real cold water temperatures, they're still pretty active this time of year in those 40-degree water temperatures, and they're definitely willing to feed. Um, if I'm looking for largemouth, well, that might be a little tougher game as we get into these colder water temperatures. They can be a little harder to target. So for me, you know, it's primarily I'm going to lakes where I can get into walleyes, I can get into smallmouth, and, and maybe maybe find some bigger trout. You know, Horsetooth's a, a prime example of a lake like that, Terry. So when you look for what kind of shoreline areas do you look for? You look for access to deep water, you look for points, 
What do you look for on the shore that you think maybe will help you? Well, yes and yes. So it tends to be this time of year, if I'm looking for smallmouth, if I'm looking for walleyes, it tends to be that I'm going to find those fish a little bit deeper. So let's say somewhere in that 20 to 45-foot range is is really going to be the depth that I'm looking for. Um, That was the case when I was out on my boat, you know, a week and a half, two weeks ago. uh, The fish were in that depth. So if I'm going to come back and I'm going to look for those fish from shore, then I'm definitely going to try to find a, a steeper bank that's going to allow me to make a cast out and get my presentation into those depths. Now, along those same lines, this time of year, if you're looking for trout, a lot of times those trout can be very, very shallow. So it's not uncommon for me. I can tell you just the other day I was out, Terry, and I was catching smallmouth out in that 40 to 25-foot range, and there were trout working the bank just a couple of feet in front of me up and down the bank, Terry. I could see them chasing shad. I could see them chasing smelt. And I did happen to catch a couple of those trout as well on some parallel casts that were a little bit closer to the bank. So, you know, it sort of I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of pick my poison depending on what species I'm looking for. Uh, inlets can also be a very good choice this time of year. So if there's water coming into a lake, like horse tooth, for example, uh, those trout this time of year, if that water's coming in, they'll definitely nose their way up into that current. So an inlet can be a good choice. And then, you know, a tailwater, somewhere coming out of a, out of a reservoir, out of the bottom of a lake, uh, that can also be an excellent choice for trout. Yeah, you're, you're right. There's just some great opportunities out there, tailwaters, and just some of our rivers up and down the Front Range even that are just still warm. What is there any particular presentations you use for the different fish that you start with, or uh, what do you like to throw this time of the year? Well, if I'm looking for deep fish, Terry, then it tends to be that I'm going to be doing a lot of the same presentations I was doing from the boat late in the year. I'm just going to be adapting them and doing them from shore. So presentations like a jigging spoon or or maybe a blade bait or something like a darter-style bait, like a Johnny Darter or a jigging wrap, something along those lines, those were all presentations that we were working from the boat and, you know, from the boat, we were making casts with them and yo-yoing them back in, or we were also just fishing them straight vertically at times. From the shore, it's definitely going to be you're making casts, and you're going to yo-yo those presentations back in. So, for example, I may be standing on a real steep bank, and I'll make a cast out there, and, and I know my lure is making it out to the depth where it's going to fall to 50, 60 feet deep because I'm on such a steep bank. I'm going to go ahead and allow those presentations to fall all the way to the bottom, and then I'm just going to rip them up and let them fall and work them back towards the bank. You know, I'm going to pay attention to my line and watch my line moving on the water. And if I go to lift it, there's any kind of resistance there. You know, it's either a fish or a rock. So I'm going to set the hook and, and figure it out later, which it is, Terry. But uh, that's a good way of going about it. You know, from the boat for the last, let's say, month or so, the other thing we were doing as we were working our, our vertical presentations like that, we also had a dead stick that we were often just hanging over the side of the boat with something like a gold minnow or a hair jig and just suspending that, let's say, 25, 26 feet you know, trying to get it maybe just a foot to two or three feet above the bottom and kind of keeping it right in that range. 
Well, you can do that from the bank as well, Terry, with something like a slip bobber where you, you know, you set your depth with your line stop and, and put something like a, a gulp minnow on an eighth ounce jig head or, or maybe a bucktail jig or a marabou jig or something along those lines. And you set it to that depth and you can make a cast out there, allow that thing to fall. And that will also get those fish that, you know, a lot of times we're doing both things. And what we'll see is we'll, we'll, we'll trigger the fish just like we're ice fishing, Terry. They'll, they'll come in on the active presentation. Or, or we'll hook one on the active presentation, and you reel that in, and as you reel that in, you know, the school of fish that were with it tend to follow it sometimes, and then they bite that dead stick presentation that's just hanging there. You can do the same thing from shore, you know, as long as you have a, a two rod stamps. You can go ahead and cast that, that, that float presentation out there and then work that active presentation kind of adjacent to that. And a lot of times, you know, you'll, you'll get those, those, those little more sluggish fish to bite that, that presentation that's not quite as active. What about the trout that are shallow? Do you change up? What do you do for those? I do, Terry. The trout that are sh- shallow, you know, I really have two ways of going about those more often than not. Uh, often it's going to be a, a shallow running jerk bait, something that I can throw right at those fish that I'm seeing moving around, try to get it right in their face and really pop it hard a few times and, and make it look wounded, make it look like it's a scared smelt that's being chased. Uh, a lot of times those trout will load up on that thing right away. Uh, other times the gulp minnow will work as well, and that, that same sort of a thing where you, you cast it and you fish it real aggressively in and around where you're seeing the active fish, and then you kind of kill it and allow it to fall a few feet. Not necessarily necessarily all the way to the bottom like I would in the summer, Terry, but keeping it in the top couple feet of the water column and just kind of snapping it up, moving it along like a soft jerk bait, and then killing it and letting it to fall. I can't tell you how many big trout I've, I've caught that way up at a horse tooth, Terry, where I, I've seen the active fish on the surface. I've, I've thrown that gulp minnow into that area and snapped it a few times and killed it, and it falls a couple feet, and then the line just goes darting off, Terry, and you know you've got them. So those tend to be my choices. Um, you know, if you're seeing the active fish like that and, and you're kind of wanting to do both, then having that gulp minnow can be a good call, having that in your hand, because you can you can be snap jigging that thing out there deep all the way in that 30, 40, 50 foot range as well. And then if you do see an active fish come up shallow, you can reel in real quick and make that cast to that fish with that exact same presentation. Um, I'm telling you if, you, if you see those fish active on the surface, Terry, you're seeing them making disturbances, you got to get that presentation in there real, real quick because usually that's a fish that's darting around a little school of bait, and if you're 30 seconds late, he's 20 yards from where you saw him. So uh, having the gulp minnow in your hand can be real effective because you can kind of do both things really, really quick, Terry. You're absolutely right. Ronnie, we got, we're out of time. i got to let you go, but – what would a fisherman like you like for Christmas? Got any ideas for our fans out there? <laughs> uh, you know, there's a lot of good things. I can tell you this, Terry. Here's one. Uh, pin, you know, the pin, pin spinning reels are, are, I'm a big fan of the pin spinning reels. Been guiding with them for years. Been using them basically my whole life. Um, you know, pin does a thing every year where they, they upgrade their line of reels and then they kind of take the components that were in the one line and they sort of drop it down to the line below. So the Pin Fierce 3s are out right now, and those are the reels that, you know, the Pin Fierce lines have been the reels that I've been guiding with for years and years, Terry. Well, they took that Pin Fierce 2, which is primarily the reel I have, and now that's basically the Pin Pursuit 3. And so it has all the components that I've, that I've liked and I've proven, you know, have lasted. I haven't had a single one of those reels fail in the last three, four years that I've been guiding with those Pin Fierce 2s. 
Um, that Pin Pursuit 2 comes in at a really great price range now, Terry. You can find that reel online for maybe 30 to $40. Often it's right at $36 for, let's say, a 2000 or a 2500 size Pin Pursuit 3. Um, I would love to see a few of those under my tree this year, Terry, because they're outstanding reels. They have great drags. They have saltwater components. Um, but they're great for freshwater reels. You really can't come close to finding anything in that price range that's going to be as durable as that reel, Terry. Well, hopefully your significant other was listening, and Santa will bring you some of those. Ronnie? I'll take a dozen of them, Terry. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Ronnie. All right, buddy. Have a good one. You bet. Ronnie Castiglione, always a great source of information. He he takes that extra step. You know, he's, he's fishing these shorelines, and he sends me pictures. He's taking that extra step to walk to where that water is right. He's just not fishing where it's easy. And he's he's really putting thought into where those fish will be. And he'll catch fish all the way up until he can't cast because there's ice there. And for you, there's going to be opportunities. If Even if the lakes start to freeze, we're going to have rivers that are going to stay open at the lower elevations that you can fish both of the fly rod and conventionally. So don't put your rods away. There's lots of things to get out and fish for. We're going to wrap this up. Please follow us on Facebook, Terry Wicks from Outdoors. A lot of what we cover on the show gets reposted on Facebook if you miss some of it or if you want to review it. We talk about upcoming guests and topics on Facebook. We post uh, the fishing report from Colorado Parks and Wildlife. We do any live updates. If I'm out, we put those up on Facebook. And a lot of the fishing we talk about, you can find on our YouTube channel, The Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom, was filmed right around here. So go to The Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom, Google some of your favorite fishing spots, and I'll bet you'll find a video by us on The Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom. I want to say thanks to Kyle, thanks to Karen for keeping this show running. We'll let the Eagles take us to the top of the hour in sports on 104.3 The Fan. Yes, she stood